it really is. I'm here. I am five years. Actually, I was just thinking to myself, it's been six years coming, consecutive years to Kingdom Life Church. I remember the first year I came was to visit with the Bunting family, Keith and Kristen and their daughters, with my wife by my side. We were here, and that kicked off the next five years leading to this, this morning that I've been coming to do music camp. So just speechless, I'm blown away that, that here we are half a decade plus later that, that I've been coming among you and have really truly grown in relationship and love and appreciation and respect for you, for your family, this church family is, what this church family is becoming, and just great respect for Cedric and Alexine and, and Clarence and Demetria and so many others uh, that I've, we've partnered with and loved so much. So thank you for welcoming us. Thank you for opening your hearts and the whole middle section for our, our team here. Uh, this is a great group. We've been together on the ground in Bahamas, and for some of us, we've only ever really met each other a couple hours. You know, we've, we've known each other since yesterday afternoon. So here we are for the first time, mixed and mingled from three different states, and uh, looking forward to what the Lord has for us this coming week at Music Camp. So... As has been asked, I, I definitely put my word in there for that as well as for your prayers uh, as we look to, to share the good news of Jesus Christ through music and through the gathering of, of so many servants in the church. There, I know, I know there's going to be rich opportunities to talk to little ones about Jesus Christ, to explain to them the way to eternal life is only through Him, just as we memorized or should have memorized. Um, I told Cedric, that's cheating to have that up there when it's time to, like, you can't give the you know, license. You've got to have it off, brother, in the future. Just my one critique. Just shut it off. We want to hear them do it. You know? That's right. No, no more of that cheating. Yeah. Uh, but if you could pray, if you could look uh, to opportunities to pray, we'd appreciate it. And I do bring on behalf of the uh, pastors of Crossway Church and the people of Crossway Church, and as well, I really speak on behalf of the team and their churches. Uh, thank you for welcoming us. Thank you for, again, partnering with us. That's, that's what we're doing. We're invading, we're coming into your midst, but we're all partnering together for the good news, to bring Jesus to the Bahamians, to bring Jesus, which you have been so faithfully doing for decades as a church body. You have brought the Lord Jesus Christ in word and deed together uh, to this neighborhood and to the surrounding region. And we, we're joining with you now. We're jumping on board and we're look, looking for an opportunity to help serve to that end. So thank you for opening up. And I bring greetings on, on behalf of these churches and for Crossway especially. It's great to be here. So thank you. Let's turn in, in God's Word, if you will, to Judges chapter 3. The book of Judges. Much can be said about the book of Judges. It is not... A pleasant book necessarily to read. It is certainly an exciting book of the Bible to read. It's a historical narrative, an account of God's people, of Israel, in and through the time before the installation of the monarchy. So this is the time after Moses and Joshua die. They're no longer judging Israel, no longer providing leadership, and all of a sudden there's this vacuum, this time, this, this space, while Israel is in the promised land, they have settled as the tribes in the land, but there's no centralized government. There's no judge. There's no king. There's really nothing that unifies them. And as you find throughout the book of Judges, that the fruit of that is tragic. 
And the people of Israel, it says constantly, a refrain within the book of Judges, that the people did what was right in their own eyes. That Israel constantly were going about business as they thought it should be done. Each individual family and each tribe unto themselves. And we know when that happens, nothing goes well. Nothing goes well. So the lesson... The lessons there are many throughout the book of Judges, and one that we'll be focusing on this morning from Judges chapter 3, and this is the title of our sermon, and this is the lesson I, I pray that God would lay on our hearts, would press on us from His Word, and that is this, that we'd be keeping from cozy in Canaan. Keeping from cozy in Canaan. I realize it's probably not correct English, but it's good alliteration. Keeping from cozy and Canaan. And you're going to remember that now. Keeping from cozy and Canaan. And this is, I pray, uh, that God would uh, drive to our hearts this morning. That theme. And that's something that we're going to draw from in Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 31. But before we get there, just a, a question for you. Who in this room enjoys a midterm exam or a final exam who in this room enjoys preparing for a test, whether it's a driving test or, or a colonoscopy? Who of us enjoys that kind of experience where we've got to face the unpleasant reality of I've got to be tested? I've, my knowledge, my skills, my health, my well-being, whatever the test might be, none of us. I mean, I've met a few and they're, they're, these are the kind of people you, you wonder about. You know, you really enjoy midterms, really. You enjoy preparing for testing. Uh, that's not the regular. That's not me, certainly. And I, I know for most of us, that's not you either. But there is something very important that a test provides us. Again, whether it's a medical exam or an examination in school, it provides us with real, clear data to what's actually going on. You know, certainly in the classroom, it provides the teacher with the do, do the do the students understand what I'm teaching? Are they getting the material? Are they understanding it? Are they applying it? That's critical. And in the case of a CAT scan or a colonoscopy or heart catheterization, the doctor is able to get right in there and understand what is going on here. Examination provides real, raw data that brings truth, brings clarity. So none of us enjoys the process, certainly none of us do, but what the end result is, it, it provides us with critical information for our progress and for our well-being, certainly, as individuals. The book of Judges, and I think we'll see here in chapter 3, oppresses this point that we're in the middle of a test. We may not be aware of that, we may not be wired to think this way, but brothers and sisters, as believers, Scripture tells us, you are being tested. You're in exam right now. You're in the middle of it. The pencils are on paper. You're filling in those dots. You're doing a test. And that's what the book of Judges shows us. Now, unfortunately, humans have lived for millennia thoughtlessly detached from that reality. That there is a, there is a God who scrutinizes humankind. There is a holy creator who actually keeps track of all of our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, and who relentlessly cares about what we do with our lives and what we do with our thoughts and how our tongues speak. 
we're in the middle of a test. And so, and so much as humans have forgotten that reality, that is the truth. And that's what the book of Judges leads us to. I'm going to read starting in verse 1 here to read kind of the background before we get up to the first judge. The first judge that the book of Judges brings to us is Othniel, chapter 3, verse 7. We are introduced in, in the story of Othniel. But before we get there, I want to set the context for this situation in Israel's history. And this describes the test that Israel was under. Now, verse 1, chapter 3, God's Word. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all of Israel who had not experienced all wars, all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not yet known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites and their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons and they served their gods. There's the test. There's the test. The test has been set for Israel. God leaves these unconquered nations. If you're familiar with the history of Israel, Israel was meant to conquer the promised land from head to toe, from left, from east to west. Every side and every square inch of the promised land was meant to be a conquered place. Israel was meant to rest in the promised land. But God, as we see here, as a result of Israel's rebellion, really, before God, they failed to pass the test. They failed to conquer these Canaanites, these pagan nations. And so God, we are just told here in verses 1 through 6, that God tests Israel through these nations being left in the promised land. And this leads us right to the story of Othniel. Right to the story that we're going to be kicking off with this morning. So how will Israel fare? Will they pass the test? And I think our experience this morning is going to be one of a slow, kind of a revealing, like watching a slow motion video of someone failing a test. You know, watching kind of the, the painful moment by moment of this person failing something, failing to have prepared well, and then facing the consequences of failing to prepare. It's like a slow motion disaster, the train wreck of Israel. So we're going to see this in this text. And here's our theme for keeping from cozying Canaan. We're going to look at this. Pay attention. The test is on. Every soul must quit drifting and call on Christ. Say that again. Pay attention. The test is on. And every soul must quit drifting and call on Christ. And our three points are going to follow the first three judges of Israel. Okay? Othniel, and Ehud, and finally Shamgar. So this is chapter 3, the book of Judges. So, pay attention. The test is on. And every soul must quit drifting and call on Christ. Let's look at Othniel. And Othniel shows us that we need deliverance. And Othniel's story is the first judge. He's the first one. 
In a sense, he kicks off a series of 12 deliverers and seven different cycles of oppression and deliverance in the book of Judges all the way through chapter 16. So chapter 3 to 16 is the seven different cycles of Israel falling on their face, bashing their faces on the concrete of false gods and disobedience before God, and God coming along, scooping them up, through a deliverer, or a series of deliverers, 12 deliverers to be in fact, to be, to, to, to be truthful, and rescuing Israel from the wreckage, bringing them back to health. And then the cycle repeats itself. That's, we see that time and again through chapter 3 all the way to the end, really, of chapter 16 in the book of Judges. And that is the main part of the narrative of the book of Judges, is to show that repetition, that downward spiral of Israel getting up and then smacking their face on the concrete yet again until they're a mess, a pulp, by the end of the book of Judges. It's a downward spiral, washed, rinse, and repeat. Down and down the spiral goes. There's the book of Judges. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a fun book, and it's not meant to bring delight or joy in one sense. But in another sense, it's meant to test and show where our joys really are and to give us true joy in God our Savior. So, starting in chapter 3, verses 7-11, we read of Othniel, and he really sets the paradigm for what's about to be shown throughout the rest of the book of Judges. So let's read chapter 3, verses 7-11 through 11 about Othniel. Verse 7, look with me. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forget the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. They served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Shaphim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And there goes the cycle. And the whole cycle is right there. Oppression. They forget. Then they're oppressed. God sends an invasive army conquers them, and they cry out after eight years. And God raises a man named Othniel, who's Caleb's younger brother. We are introduced to, to this gentleman, Othniel, in chapter 1 of Judges. He's the man who actually wins the hand of Caleb's daughter after he captures the beer. So he goes on an act of courage and wins the hand of Caleb's daughter in chapter 1. So here's a very brave, militaristic figure in Israel's history. God raises him up here in chapter 3, as a response to Mesopotamia and their threat. They're, they're taking over Israel. But then we get to the end of the story. After eight, 40 years, Othniel dies. And what do you think happens? Do you think Israel continues on in obedience and, and love and devotion to their God? Is that what happens? No. Unfortunately not. Unfortunately not. That is the story of Judges. And the story of Othniel reminds us that mankind will always be true to form. Okay? 
There's a few things that you will always find true wherever you happen to drill down into human history. If you take a core sample anywhere, you're going to find many things to be true about humankind. And Othniel, the story of Othniel in the book of Judges shows us some of those immovable realities that have to do with our human race, our sinful, broken race. And that is that we're sinful and broken. So it doesn't matter where, it doesn't matter how glorious the civilization happened to be, if you take a core sampling and you pull it up, the human heart remains desperately sick, deceitful. Who can understand it? So says Jeremiah in chapter 17, verse 9. That's what you're going to find. So Israel's history here and its problem is one of depravity. It's not just a theological breakdown. It is a depravity breakdown. It is our MO, our mode of operation, our method of living. It's what comes out of our sinful proclivities. And the problem of Israel, you think about it, the problem of Israel is a problem of worldliness, really. Worldliness. They shifted and slid into the world and the forms and the substance of the world. They fell in love. In fact, we read in verse 6 that their daughters they took to themselves for wives, meaning the pagan surrounding nations. So Israel's even intermarrying with the pagan tribes, which God said, don't do that. <laughs> God made it very clear. Don't do that because the minute you do that, you're go- you'll, you will begin to adopt their pagan worship. You will begin to take on their idols. And sure enough, God is never incorrect. Sure enough, when Israel intermarried, then we read in the second half of verse 6, and they served their gods. So they began to become very cozy in the land of Canaan. Israel was not meant to be cozy in Canaan with the Canaanites. But that's exactly the problem. That's where our depravity takes us. So worldliness, think about this. Worldliness, looking to our day, is not merely a concern with don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do. You ever hear that? That's the statement that often people will say about what worldliness is. It's about avoiding certain things. It's about not smoking or chewing tobacco or watching particular types of movies. or That's kind of the strict definition of what worldliness is. Well, I'm, That's not the concern necessarily at its heart, certainly. And that's not what we see here in chapter 3. Worldliness in Israel, think about it, in worldliness in our day, it's a very pragmatic concern. It's very pragmatic. It's the gravitational pull towards comfort towards ease, towards pleasure and happiness and relief from suffering apart from God. So it's any of those things, comfort, ease, pleasure, relief from suffering, in such a way I'm pursuing those things apart from God. You can, you can put anything, fill in the blank, what are you seeking? If you're seeking pleasure in a particular form, whether it's a sexual form or an intellectual form, whatever it happens to be, if you're pursuing that without God, there's worldliness. Or if you're suffering, if you're experiencing great emotional or, 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 or physical suffering, and you're, you're placing your hope 
in other things apart from God, without God, without reference to the living God, that is worldliness. You're seeking relief from pain without Christ. So it's any of those things. So worldliness is a very pragmatic affair. It's when we're seeking our pleasures or our reliefs without reference to God. It's, it's seeking to take matters into our own hands. Our fulfillment on my turf, right? My time, my turf, my terms, with or without God. You know, whether God is involved or, or not really doesn't matter because what really matters in worldliness is that I'm just getting what I want, whether it's relief or joy. And whether God's in it, the equation at all, it's an afterthought. In fact, I can maybe rubber stamp God later. I can just stamp it on what I want later and say, ah, God's in it. But that's not how it works. We're not dealing with idols of stone or wood, Canaanite gods, Ashtaroth or Baal or Enoch. We're not dealing with those kind of things. We're dealing with, I want fulfillment or relief, and I will get it in whatever way I see best fit for myself. That's worldliness. And that's precisely what Canaanite, the the experience that the Israelites were having in Canaan. They were getting comfy, cozy in Canaan. Canaan. Now, we can justify these worldly tendencies, right? We can say things like this. God wants me to be happy. So therefore, I will do this and whatever that is. Or God doesn't want me to suffer. God doesn't want his children to suffer. So I will go about getting relief any way I see fit. Or we'll say things like bad feelings or bad circumstances can't possibly be from God. So therefore, I must seek relief or I must seek my pleasure on my terms, on my turf, in my timing. So we end up overreaching. We go for pleasure or relief without really caring to think about what God thinks. And there lies the trap of worldliness. It's without thought. It's thoughtless. It's it's restless. It's inconsiderate of the living God. We just seek out our relief for our pleasure on our terms. And the story of the book of Judges is one of pervasive worldliness. It's Israel taking the world on their turf, on their terms, without thought of God. Without thought of God. So with that in mind, it's it's not too difficult for us to empathize with the problems that we're reading here about Israel. We don't sit on a high horse looking down on Israel. We don't think to ourselves, boy, oh boy, I would never get caught in that trap, right? Now, when we understand that their problem is one of worldliness, which is our concern as believers this morning, then we can more empathize and more humbly recognize that God is speaking to us through their experience through the book of Judges. So, it's not not difficult for us to empathize. So, question for you. What might you be drifting to? Are there particular forms of relief or anesthesia, whether you're watching television or giving yourself to entertainment on untold hours? Are there ways that you're pursuing relief or you're pursuing pleasure, whether it's on a laptop, in a darkened room, looking at images you shouldn't be looking at? What kind of relief or pleasure are you seeking Without Christ. Without reference to God. Where might you be drifting? That's a question. The the press of God's word calls you. I call you this morning 
to quit your drifting and call on Christ because the test is on. God is testing us. He is testing our hearts. Are we going to obey and love Him, hold Him high? Are we going to call on Christ? Or are we going to look to other things, our own pleasures, our time, our turf, our terms? What are we doing? The test is on. So, the story of Othniel shows us the humans will be true to form every time. We're going to be the same, whether in Judges' time or today, but also we're going to see that God remains true to form as well. And we read this in the book of Judges, how God responds with pity, with compassion to Israel at the time of their oppression. There they are. They're getting their just desserts, right? Judges 3 tells us they forgot God. They serve other gods. Well, does God have, therefore, is he pressured to have to make a decision to treat them with mercy? Does God owe them love and mercy for the way that they have responded faithlessly to him? Does God owe them mercy? Does God owe them kindness and patience and long-suffering in His love? No. God should have relegated to, to, to total oblivion, to, to destruction at the hands of their enemies. He should have allowed them to be wiped out by the Canaanites who oppressed them. The king of Mesopotamia should have, if Israel is going to get their just desserts, the king of Mesopotamia should have leveled Israel should have destroyed them. But as it is, God responded to the, to the cries of God's people. And we read this in verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, what does the Lord do to respond? Does He say, no! You're getting it. You're getting what you deserve. No, what He, what he does, and this shows the mercy of God, God raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. So what they could not do themselves, God did. He sent a Messiah, a little M Messiah, mind you, a temporary Savior, one who would save them for about 40 years. And his Saviorship would come to an end with his death. And he would turn to dust, and no one knows where Othniel's grave is today. He's a forgotten person except for this story, little story, in the book of Judges. So his saviorship was very limited. The expiration date was only 40 years later. But yet, what this story shows us is the compassion, the mercy of God. God delivers His people from their sin. And what does He do in the test? We need to understand this. Is God first, to save His people, God first sends in an invading army. Do you realize that? The story of Judges shows us that. Is the fact that the Kushan Rathathame that's, I, I should, that's some special gift of the Lord to be able to say some of these names. I can't do it. Kushan Rishathain. I'm probably even saying it wrong. But that's the way I'm going to say it. Kushan Rishathain, the king of Mesopotamia, was sent by God. Do you understand that? God sends this invading army. And why does he do that? Well, it's, it's, it's part one plan of saving Israel. Do you realize that? God sends an invading army in order to be the step one of actually saving Israel by testing them, by showing them they need a Savior, not just one more idol on their shelf. No, they need 
an overhaul. They need the Lord, Yahweh. So God sends Kushan Resephim and the king, the king of Mesopotamia and the people there cried out under the weight of their service and God responds. So in that cycle, we see God's grace, His faithfulness, His deliverance. And then He sends Othniel to deliver them. So this brings us to Ehud, the second story in Judges 3. So we learned about Othniel. And the test is on. Pay attention. Right? Wake up. Pay attention. The test is on. Every soul must quit drifting and call on Christ. And this brings us to Ehud. So we looked at Othniel, who shows us that we need deliverance. And our deliverance comes both by God sending troubles and trials and invading armies, but also by God sending a deliverer, right? And now we come to Ehud, who shows us that we should relish our deliverance. Because it's in the second judge, Ehud, that things get pretty, pretty heated quickly. Things escalate. This is one of the more gruesome, detailed, violent stories in the Bible. This is the kind for a very exciting reading for your quiet time. It's hard to understand why this would be included in the canon if you don't understand its purpose and what God is showing us here. Let me read it. I'll let you hear all of the, the details yourself. Verse 12, from God's Word, chapter 3. And the people of Israel... Did, did what was I'm sorry, and the people of Israel again did what was did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And the Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit, or about 18 inches in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, Silence! And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and he thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came. When they, had saw, when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when they, he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key, opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. 
Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols, escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he had sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, and not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. What a story, huh? What a story. And I think the temptation when I face it with this text is to take out the Lysol spray, right? And just, just clean things up a bit. Is that really required, Lord, all these gross details? Why is this here, Lord? Well, I think if we're going to understand why the story is written in the way that it is, we're going to have to read it like an Israelite would have. Okay? We're going to have to look at it through the eyes of an Israelite. I think what we're seeing here in gross detail is the routing of the powers that had conquered Israel. And don't you think there would be a certain relish, a certain rejoicing for an Israelite if this was the conquering enemy to hear of just how humiliated their enemies were. The Yahweh, the Lord, would see to their deliverance in such a way that their big fat king is now in a pile in his own blood and dung on the floor. And don't you think the Israelites would rejoice to read that again and again and again to their children and to rejoice in the salvation of their God. To say, this is what happens to the enemies who trifle with Yahweh. This is what happens to those who would dare try to conquer God's people. Don't you think there would be a relish about this to read this chapter again and again? It's almost like a concentration camp survivor in the time of World War II would relish in re-reading the story of Hitler's suicide in Berlin. That they would read again and again of of V-Day and the conquering of the Axis powers in 1945. Don't you think that that would have a similar effect? This relishing in salvation. This relishing in their deliverance. And that's precisely how we're meant to read this. Is these details, gross as they may be, they show just how conquered their conqueror would become. That God did such a decisive squashing of the enemy that this man is crumpled in a pile. And more than that... We read in verse 29, the cherry on top. Not only was Eglon the fat and mighty left for dead. We read in chapter 3, verse 29, that not a man escaped. Approximately 10,000 of Moab's strongest and most able-bodied soldiers are also dead with their king. So we read of a complete devastation of Moab's power in Israel. So reading it that way, we can understand and almost join with Israel in relishing, right? We can rejoice with them. And let's consider our own reasons to relish in salvation. Because think about it, the book of Judges, as we all know, Othniel, Ehud, Samson, all the judges, they die. 
All of them. In fact, the, the writers here make a very, very strong point every time there's a judge to highlight for us that they die. You read in verse, verse 11. So the land had rest for 40 years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And we read in chapter 4, verse 1, about Ehud. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And we read again and again in the book of Judges, these judges, these deliverers, these little M messiahs, lowercase m messiahs, that God would send, all of them die. And they're done, right? Their deliverance was short-lived. The longest deliverance actually is Ehud. For 80 years, of all the judges, in the time of the judges, the longest span of time, there was peace in the land of Israel. 80 years under the hand of Ehud, delivering them from Moab. And that's the expiration date. I mean, 80 years. That's all they can have under that Messiah, under that deliverer. But listen to what we have to relish in. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, let's consider just how great we have it. We have, a de- we have a deliverer. We have a judge. We have a Messiah whose work and whose deliverance is perfect and is permanent. What Jesus Christ has done in the routing of our enemies is perfect and it is permanent. And more than that, Jesus Christ, think about what He did. He died, but what did He go beyond the judges to do? Our Lord and Savior, our judge and deliverer would rise again to everlasting immortality as our Lord and as our Messiah King. Jesus is alive. That's our King. We're not dealing with a dead judge who no one knows where he's buried anymore. No, Jesus rose. The grave was empty on the third day. And now he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty who, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. Jesus Christ is alive. This is our God. And this is our deliverance, the one we ought to be relishing day after day as believers, that we ought to be telling one another, reminding each other just how good we have it as believers, that our sins are paid in full. The very same depravity that we see in the book of Judges is in your heart. The coarse sampling of your soul is found wanting. You are a wicked person in the sight of God. But God has made it possible that He might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus that those who are ungodly would be welcomed into His holy presence forever. God has made that way through Jesus. It's written for us in the Word. That is the Gospel. And that is the story we must retell and relish together. And that's in part why God gives us the Lord's Supper. And why the Lord's Supper must be a regular part of the Christian diet. So when you approach the Lord's Supper, when you approach communion on a Sunday... We go for the food, for God's food. Not just any old food. We go for satisfaction in Jesus Christ, reminding and remembering the, and relishing the salvation of Jesus Christ that is pure, perfect, and permanent. 
we come and we receive from the Lord's Supper the bread and the juice. And we're receiving them more than just symbols. And they are symbols, right? They're symbolic of our Lord and Savior, His body and His blood. But they're more than that. There is a spiritual food, a spiritual reality that when we take those things into our lips, that God would bless those things as grace to us. And that we would receive in His presence a feeding, a a feasting in the Lord. That we would come to God and receive food, God's food, for our souls. The kind of bread that Jesus promised, if you eat of this bread, you will never hunger again. Or if you would drink of this water, you will never thirst. That's the kind of spiritual food and drink that our Savior offers to His church. And we receive gladly, don't we? And also we, re- we come to the Scriptures, we come to the Bible as God's very Word, His very food to us. And it is more than simply religious, idealistic thinking of what Jesus did for us. No, this is actual food for us. This is your livelihood. This is your hope. This is your food. So I do ask, are you eating? Are you, are you partaking? Are you feasting on the words of God? Brother, sister, do not neglect your Bibles. And I respect you so much for your memorization of Scripture that you would take that to heart. Run with it. Even with all the cheating going on. Keeping that thing on behind. I tell you, that's... Now, we come to the Scriptures as God's food, His pure and precious food. And now, brothers and sisters, we make our way to Shamgar, to the final judge in our chapter 3. This judge gets one verse. He gets verse 31. So I'll read verse 31 for you. After him, after Ehud, was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. There he is. There's Shamgar. We, are, we have no other information about this gentleman. Shamgar, the son of Anath. So what can we, what can we possibly conclude? Why is, why is he even included if there's really no story? What's going on here? Why? I think there's a few things I'm going to drill down here from this brief encounter with this final judge. And I, I, want to, I think it's this. It's small deliverances matter to God. Small deliverances matter to God. So here in one verse, we're introduced to this gentleman, Shamgar, son of Anath. And this man, by the way, he's not a Hebrew. Decisively not Hebrew. He's not Jewish. His name is not Jewish. And son of Anath is actually a title, most likely having to do with a military place, a placement in military, or he's an efficient within the military, or he is a temple servant. And Anath is the goddess of war, a Canaanite, Canaanite goddess of war. So we're talking about a pagan who actively is serving the goddess of war, either in a military way or as a temple servant. So he's not even a Jewish. He's not pretending to be Jewish. He's not having any interest, really, it seems, just by his name alone, in Yahweh, it seems. So he's not a servant of God, in that sense. He's not pretending to be. If he was, my guess is he would not go by the name Son of Anath, that title. He would not be known that way. He would be known by a a Hebraic name. He would change his name to reflect his 
commitments. So this guy is not the stuff of godliness. He's not, he's not going to make the top ten list of most godly guys in the Bible. No, he's not a Nazarite of pure Israelite blood. He's not even pretending to be an Israelite. God, we see in this verse, selected a very unlikely deliverer. Very unlikely, just as with Ehud, being a left-handed man from the least of the tribes in Benjamin. So we read now of Shamgar being a very unlikely deliverer. And we read in verse 31 simply that he saved Israel, killing 600 men by the use of an ox goad. An ox goad was a pole. We don't know the exact length.